Welcome to the Blind Stigma Podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. This podcast aims to provide a safe space that explores mental health within the Black community, breaks down the stigmas attached while taking back our narratives. Our next guest is Telesan Young John, who wants to be referred to as Telly. She is a patient of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and her background is from the island of Trinidad and Tobago. She's mentioned that she has been suffering from mental illness for a significant amount of time, which has stemmed from catastrophic issues such as being molested as a child, as well as being beaten significantly regularly in her childhood. So here we have Telesan Young John or Telly. Thank you, Telly. Thank you for joining us on the Blind Stigma podcast. I'm going to ask if you can please share with us your story. Okay, my story begins, I guess, with me suppressing um, a lot of things that went on to, went on with me from in the Caribbean, um, being molested, being ill-treated in every shape and form you could think of. I, I've been through that. Um, coming up as a young child at the age of 13 wanting, you know, a mother and daughter relationship because I've never had that because my mom left me at the age of eight um, to go away and work. And she left me um, with someone my grandfather was involved with and being ill-treated from there as well, molested there as well. Um, So when I came up at 13, I wanted a mother and daughter relationship. I didn't get that. What I got was a lot of anger from my mom. We didn't know how to connect at all. Um, I was going on memory of knowing my mom when she was there. Also, you know, not growing up in a household with a mother and father, seeing things that happened to my mom. Again, I suppressed a lot of those things at a very, very tender age. So at 13 to the age of 17, my mom still didn't have a relationship with me. I didn't have a relationship with her. Um, she kicked me out at the age of 17. I believe it was like in a dead stomp of winter. I was probably three, three weeks before I turned 18. And I've been on my own since then. Um, as a young adult growing up in Canada, coming from the Caribbean, you, it's a lot of, it's a hard adjustment, a very, very hard adjustment knowing that you can do so much for yourself, but at the same time, it's where do you turn to get the help? What what do you do? So as a young adult, I went through a lot as well, being coming to Toronto from Montreal, finding out that I'm pregnant, nowhere to go, so I'm homeless. I ended up in a home for unwed teenage moms. Again, that's a lot of suppressing, um, of holding everything in and not having anyone to talk to. Um, Dealing with all of that, then ending up losing the baby, that took me down again. (laughs) Um, But in the meantime, I was always working. I I found my way through school. I did that on my own while working as well. And I always wanted to do good for myself. I always wanted to succeed in everything that I did. And everyone upheld me as the strong individual. And inside, I was always breaking. There was no strength of my own other than, you know, knowing 
I have to do this. I have to do this because I don't want to fall. Um, at 22, I found that I was pregnant again with my daughter. So I did that on my own again, not without my mom or anyone um, doing that on my own. I never turned to anyone for help. So I did that. I, you know, I got pregnant. I had my daughter. I was still in school. I was working. So I was doing everything as a strong black woman is supposed to do. We're not supposed to fall. Oh my goodness. I had that mentality that I am not going to fall. Yes. But inside I'm suffering. Isn't that amazing? Because we do talk about um, the, or we don't talk about a lot, is the 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 strong black woman um, concept uh, that we feel that we have to uphold. But in the midst of that, we're starting to we lose our humanity, you know, in the midst of all of this. Because you, as you, I think you, as you so eloquently put, you're breaking down inside. But we have been raised to be these, you know, pillars of strength and we have to keep everything together. And you also mentioned that that was the role that you played in your family as well. You were supposed to be the strong one. So regardless of what was going, what you were going through, what was being thrown at you, you're still supposed to be, quote unquote, uh, the strong one and, and take everything on. Yes. And I did that. I mean, having my daughter, I still... I was still able to focus. I was still able to go through everything. And in the midst of listening to everybody going through everything and me being the strong one and holding everybody up, but then behind closed doors, who's helping me when I'm crying? Right. Who's helping me to, to, to stand, stand up straight. I'm raising a daughter, you know, paying for school, paying for daycare, didn't have a subsidy. And I'm doing all this myself and there's nothing for me to eat, but I'm making sure she has. Right. Because right. again, that's what I know. This is what I know. Mothers can do without, but their children has to have it. And isn't that fascinating that that is now, you know, generational teaching that we have, you know, it, it, it's something that's ingrained almost in particularly in the Caribbean community. It's, you know, you, you're as a mother, it is your duty to make sure that you don't go without, make sure your kids are okay, but you have to now, it's almost like a badge of honor that you have to suffer, you know, so that, you know, so that everything is, is taken care of. Yeah, and I, I did that. No qualms again, you know, I came again, here I am stable in one job and I got another job like paying more to help me survive with my daughter and then I got pregnant with my son wasn't sad about it because I've always wanted a boy because I've lost my son so I've always wanted a son so getting my son was a joy was that was my heart that was my that was my breaker that was that was it I was like okay I'm set God can't give me anything else now because I have my boy and I have my girl I may not have money, but guess what? I am rich in God. I'm rich because I have two children and I'm blessed. So I went with that. And me finding God like along the way helps me a lot. But still, I was breaking. I was breaking because I always had to stand firm, be strong for my children. So they see, you know what? Through everything, my mom is strong. She's a strong black woman. She goes through everything. But then when I put them down to sleep, I'm crying myself to sleep. And I have to go through this day in and day out. Wake up day in and day out. Put this face on and go out there, face the world, come home at night and crying. 
But then I got married and I thought, oh, this is a fairy tale marriage that I've always wanted. Okay, someone accepted me with my two children. I've accepted him with his four children. Come to find out that's a lie. That is a lie. The home that I worked so hard to secure to make sure, okay, when his children comes up here, you know, it's a combined family. We're going to, we're going to make this work. We are going to make this work. Got the home. And then what happens? The children that I helped raise, you know, and do everything for that was living in the Caribbean. And then I bring them up. They wanted to beat me in my home. I left. They did things to my son that I had to send my son to his father, which is something I never wanted to do because I've never parted with my children. So that six months that my son was not with me, it, 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 kept, it was bringing me down. It was bringing me down even further. And the depression was getting further and further and further. And I was getting more and more within myself. I wasn't from work, home, church. Work, home, church. That was my life. And it's still my life. Um, you know, um, I left at home and I was homeless, nowhere to go, no church family to lean on, no nothing. I had to search within myself again, find the strength again, even though I ended up at Mount, at, um, a hospital for mental patients. I was there for 72 hours. And I had to, they let me out because they said, okay, everything was fine. You can leave now. I knew everything wasn't fine because I'm still suffering. I'm still thinking of ways to harm myself. It, whether it be walking and I would pray every day, let a bus hit me, let something hit me, anything to take away the pain that I'm feeling inside. I didn't know how to deal with that pain. I did not know how to handle that pain anymore mm -hmm. because I was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Um, I had to look at my son every day and just, and my daughter and just say, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Make sure I have that face on that. They would see the happy, the strong face, go to work, put on that fire. Same thing. Listening to the younger girls in there complaining, coming to me, calling me mom. Again, no one to hold me. No one to make sure that I was good. And so when I finally got another place to live with my children, um, it happened again. I ended up this time at Cam H. Did I think that's where I wanted to be? No. Where did I find myself? Walking. Close to the 401, ready to jump. You know, um, it was hard. I, I, all I could say is, for some reason, I have an angel that protects me. Um, a woman came up to me and she says, whatever you're planning to do, don't do it. I was just going to ask you then, how did you get from, you know, being on the 401 to actually getting to CAMH? Because, you know, not everyone can actually have that kind of path, um, you know, for other people that had that was fatal. So it sounds like that there was somebody there who basically was able to intervene at that low point. Yeah, they, she did. She intervened and I've never seen her again. I am thankful for wherever she came from. I am so grateful to her because you go to church, the first thing they say is pray. Yes, we, we, we pray for strength. We pray for God to hold us up. We pray for God to 
to preserve us to keep on going, just perseverance, just just to do that. But how can you pray to God to help you with a mental illness? How? How do you reach God and say, God, your child is breaking, God. What do you do? How do you do it? And I'm so and glad then, I'm so glad you brought that up as well, because a lot of times when we talk about, you know, faith and, and mental illness, um, what people don't realize is, is that it's not just about just pray more. You know, it's it's about understanding how faith can be a part of the healing. But then also, how do we guide uh, people to get the the help that they need versus just say you need to pray more or pray harder. So I appreciate that you've also brought that up as well. They, they don't understand. In the church, all they expect you to do is pray. Yes, prayer is the key. You, you, you knock it. The Bible says knocking God will open the door. Seek and you shall find. Ask and it will be given. But when you ask God when you're in that state, it's hard. It's it's hard. And then you're saying to yourself, and then they were like, well, God is testing you. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yes, I know he's testing me. But this one, I don't know. I don't. I can't see my head above water. Like, how do I see it above water? And then, you know, like, I went to my family doctor, and she's like, I'm going to get you to see someone in Camage. I didn't think it would take a week for that to happen because she says it's a, it's a waiting process. And I went into Camage with my son. My son went with me. And only to be told, um, okay, we're taking away your rights and you're going straight over now. We're going to put you in. So they that put, was they put scary, you- but at the same time, I couldn't do it. I was, I was done. I was done for. So they had, they had, they had recommended inpatient for you? Yes. Okay. But then when I saw the psychiatrist, he was like, no, you're not going home today. And I'm like, well, then how do I tell my son that I'm broken? How do I, how do I, how do I do this? What, what do I tell him? And he's like, well, I could call him in and I could speak to him. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'm thankful that my son stood by me through the whole thing. My daughter couldn't do it because, again, she's the eldest. So she figured, mommy don't break. How can mommy break? Mommy doesn't have a day off. Mommy doesn't break. But my son stayed with me right through the whole thing till I was admitted completely at 10 o'clock at night. And all I heard him saying is, okay, make sure you take care of her. So I didn't cry in front of my son, but after my son left, I broke right down. Like I just fell to the floor and I felt like the earth just opened and took me because now, okay, I don't have to put up this face anymore. I am where I could get help. Um, Okay. So it it sounds like any, any, Thing that any wall that you had up, any protection that you you had, any shield that you had, at that moment it sounds like that that was released, and now now this is the true the true raw me coming out at this point. It was it was it was a rude awakening to hear doctors say you're you know your chronic de- depression and you're this and you're that, and I'm like, oh my god, what is all these things? What, what what do I do? How do I turn? Which way do I turn? Which way do I look? But I had to face 
everything and I had to do it again by myself and not letting my children in on so much because I didn't want them to think that their mother is this weak person. Their mother, because black women is supposed to be strong. We're not supposed to break. We're not supposed to fall. And this is what I want my children to know me as. I don't want them to see that they have to take care of me now. That that on its own was, that was like a, a ball, a rectum ball just coming and hitting me to see that my children now has to come in and sign me out from something like I'm, I'm in school. They have to sign me out now. Telly, it's interesting that you use the word weak and a sign of a sign of you didn't want your kids to see you as weak. And it's and it's really interesting because we are so conditioned to think that weak is we should we can't ask for help if we're weak, you know? And and it is a sign of strength to act and a, a sign of strength is to just carry on, just carry on and, and don't ask for help. When real strength lies into asking for help. When we need it, but we're so conditioned. Yeah, we're so we're so conditioned to think it's so you you know it's weak if you ask for help. But no, that is the strength because you are saying you know what I this is this is something that I cannot carry by myself, and I am now asking for help. And a lot of the the black community feels that way. You're not the only one. You're not the only one that feels that it's a sign of weakness to not ask for help. So thank you for sharing that because. It's it's so crucial and so important that we know that. It is not easy. One coming from the Caribbean. That's <laughs> that's a stigma you 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 don't want to have. You do not want to have because then you have to deal with your parents. Like, how could you do this to me? What do I tell my friends? Right, right. Like, what is going on with you? You're not normal. Something is wrong with you. That's number one. And then being a black person in a foreign country. That's another one on its own. And how, and how are you trying to navigate all of this as well, right? Especially in a place that is is your second home. It's that's definitely overwhelming. Yeah, it is. Like you know, it's still overwhelming because I'm dealing with it on a day to day. I look outside this morning and I'm like, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to get up. I don't want to bathe. I don't want to brush my teeth. I don't want to do anything. I just want to stay in my room in my bed. When my daughter came and told me, you know, family and friends are coming over to see the baby. I'm like, oh man, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to see anybody because I'm having one of these days right, already. Right. Just, just looking outside is my biggest challenge. Right. Telly, can I ask you about, you mentioned that, you know, your lowest point was being admitted into, into CAMH. Now from that low point, I just want to ask you, how did you then address your issue or address your your mental illness going forward from there? Because it sounds like the the admission at Cambridge was sort of your lowest point. How did you address your issue from that point forward? <laughs> I didn't address my issue until a week later. I didn't address it until a week later. A week later being... Me talking to the psychiatrist, me talking to the workers, me talking to everybody. I just stayed in my room. I took the medication that was given to me, and um, I didn't participate in anything that they had going on. I kept to myself. I, while I was in there, they kept asking, are you thinking of suicide? Yes, I am. I am thinking of ways. 
But then when I look at my window, there's all these bars. So I'm like, okay, so there's no way of doing this. I don't have a razor. I don't have anything. I can't jump. I can't do anything. So that kind of gave me a reality check. Like, you need to talk. You can't be this strong black person anymore. You are not cursed. No one did anything to you. You need to talk. You, you, you just need to talk. And when the psychiatrist came a week later again, like he came every day, every day, every day they came, but I still had nothing to say. I had nothing to say. For the whole hour we sat together, I had nothing to say. I just kept listening to everything they had to say. And in my mind, I was like, oh, this is not for me. People think black people are weak. We're not weak. What are you people talking about? This is what's going in my head. And finally, he came a week later again on a Monday morning, and I broke. I broke in front of him. And he was like, tell me what is your weakest point right now. And I said, my weakest point is talking to you as a black person, as a woman, as a mother, is talking to you to tell you what my problem is. Where do I begin? Where do I start? Do I start from the end, or do I start from the middle, or do I start from the beginning? Because I don't know where to start. He's like, how about if we just start with how you doing today? And from there, it, I started opening up and I started telling him. And um, he prescribed certain medication for me that would help me a little bit. I mean, the thought was still there. The thought is still here. As I sit and talk to you, the thought is still there. But at my weakest moment in time, it was breaking down in front of him and having to talk, open up to someone other than someone from my own race, right? someone from my own culture. Right, right. So that was hard for me. Um, and once I started doing that, I started feeling a little bit better. Because now I'm opening up. So now he's coming every day, probably <laughs> twice a day, because I just wanted to talk right. and let him know what was going on. And I, you open up and, the floodgates. I, <laughs> yeah, I said, um, you need to fix me because this is this is not my culture. We don't we don't do these things. Mm. And he listened and he said, What do you mean this is not your culture? I said, This is not my culture. We as black women, we don't we don't break. We're we're not trained to break. He's like, You didn't break. I said, So then if I didn't break, then what's wrong with me? Why am I here? He said, At this moment in time you're just dealing with what's inside of you. So you're not broken. You just need to talk. And that's how I opened up even more to him because he didn't make me feel like, you know, this person that's crazy, really, really crazy. He made me understand you just need to talk. You just need to let things out instead of keeping it inside of you. And that's what's eating you from the inside. It's it's amazing because it sounds like he... He provided you with at least some sort of safe space to feel safe enough to at least start the conversation and be open. And, and that in and of itself sounds like it, it commenced your healing journey. It did. It really did. Like, I mean, talking and opening up, the thoughts were still there. It wasn't as distorted as it, it was before. I mean, now that I'm having it outside, I kind of have the tools to work with it. But there are some days the tools doesn't work. And like I said, today I woke up and I I, I didn't want to get out of bed. I, I just didn't. My main thing now is like, 
I can be strong, but at the same time, I have to know that I'm human. Mm. And, you know, going through this doesn't make me inhuman. Oh it makes goodness. me stronger so I could help somewhere along the line for somebody else to know you're not alone. You can do this too. We're not broken. We're just, we just need to talk. We just need to open up and let someone understand other than family because family is the first one that would knock you down. Because when my mother found that I was a cabbage, I mean, I didn't want my children to tell her anything, but then when she found out, bam, she picks up the phone and she calls Trinidad. Oh, Telesan is in the madhouse. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mom. That's all I needed them to know. And that right there is, is the reason why in the Black community we're so scared to open up and to share what is happening. It's that shame factor. You know, it, it, it's, it's similar to, to when I was going through um, my, my journey with depression and my father didn't want me to open up to share to, with my friends because he figured I'm going to tell a friend, he's going to tell another friend, and somehow it's going to go back to Jamaica that he's raising a mad daughter. And, and yeah. sometimes it's, 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 it's how your parents were raised. It's, it's, what, it's what they know. So as, as much as we want to say... You know, mom or dad, you, you, we, we want to, what's the correct term I'm looking for? You want to, you want to punish them per se, or you want to criminalize them for what they're saying and saying, how dare you? It's like, they don't know better. Mm. It is like ignorance. They don't, it's, it is there's, an ignorance an and it's ignorance. a generational ignorance. Oh, absolutely. It's like, that's all they know. And that keeps on being perpetuated throughout. Absolutely. And, um, Telly, you're, I, it, you're. Your story right now, as to what you're saying, even opening up, looking out today, it brings me to the question as to where are you right now in your life? At this very moment, right. where are you now? I'm not, I'm not working. Um, I'm home. They said I'm not capable of working right now, as of right now. But um, I feel like I could do a course just to keep my mind busy and keep me out of being just not thinking about it, you know, but as they told me in Cambridge, you do have to think about it because it's a part of you. You have to know how to combine both of your lives together and make it one without feeling that you have to separate mental illness from your day-to-day livelihood. You know, as they said, um, one step at a time keeps you, keeps you alive. If you could get up and just that one day get up and go outside and, you know, face things, it makes it easier for you to cope with it throughout the day. My thing is, I don't feel like I want to be around anybody. I don't care to be around anybody. Ten, nine times out of ten, I don't even want to be around my children. I don't even, the two most precious things in my life after God is my two grandchildren. And sometimes I don't even want to be around them. I don't even feel like I'm safe around them. But when I see them, they give me the joy to wake up in the morning. They give me the joy to know to face life. Because at Camage, they taught me, um, if you hurt yourself, what would happen to your children? At the time, I only had one grandbaby. What would happen to your grandbaby? because I saw the effect it had on her. This is a child from since she started crawling on the floor would come into my room the first thing in the morning. So 
me not being here for the whole two months was enough to damage her. So when I came home, she didn't leave my sight. She did, she did not leave my sight. If I went into the bathroom, she was right there by my hip. If I go to sleep, she would lay down on my bed. Her mom would have to come and take her out of my bed to put her in, into her bed. You know, I don't know if I could live without that. So now I have to know how to deal with it. Take my medication and work through it. I didn't want to get up this morning. I really didn't. I didn't want to get up yesterday either. But I have to, I have to say I have to, I have to, I have to move on. Yes. I have to keep going. I, I, what I'm really hearing from you, Telly, is is that you're still on your healing journey. And and that this is what I appreciate, and this is why you know we have uh you know this podcast as a safe space because it's not just about oh I've had this mental illness and I've now persevered and everything is great. What I'm loving that I'm hearing from you is is that no I'm still on this journey. I'm still aiming to heal. I have my good days and bad days, and. More, most importantly, what I'm really hearing from you and what I'm appreciating what you're sharing is, is that this is humanness, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's not about this perfection or this, you know, strong black woman syndrome complex or persona. This is me as telly as a human being. And, and I'm going to ebb and flow and I'm going to go through different things. But this journey is a journey that I'm still on. So I, I, I so thoroughly appreciate um, you mentioning this. What I could say to anybody out there, if you could talk about it, you're on your way. Oh my, oh, oh my goodness. I'm actually so glad you said that because one of our final questions um, is what I wanted to ask you is how do we change the stigma? If you can talk about it, if you can get up and face the day, know that you're a step further than you were an hour or a day. You, you're you doing better. Mm, and amen. to me, I'm still working on it, but guess what? I'm further than I was before. <laughs> Because now I can actually talk about it and not feel shame. That's right. To tell my children about it or even to tell my children what happened in my life. And I'm not as, I'm over, like, I, I, I overcrowd them a lot because I don't want them to hurt. But I'm learning. And that's something I have, I'm, I'm so proud of. I'm learning to let go. When my son leaves in the evening or when he goes out, all I say is, God, as he leaves, bring him back safely. And that's it. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't bug him. I don't crowd him. What are you doing? I, I, I don't. I don't anymore because I'm learning to know that I have to let him or my daughter learn from my mistakes. And being that he's taking the course as well, it's helping me. Because he would be like, breathe, mom, breathe. Ah. And he takes me through it where my daughter can't handle certain things like that. He's my rock. He's my pillar. And he's, he's my, he's my chairing guy. He's always like, so you're good. Okay. But I always say now, if you can live to tell about it, that is the biggest accomplishment that you, 
having children is a big accomplishment, but dealing with mental illness, and if you could talk about it, you're on your way. You're on your way. And there's further to go. That's all I could tell anybody. Mental illness is not a joke. It is not something to just sit down and when you see a person tells you, oh, this is happening, I'm in a... I'm in a black area, whatever the case may be. It's not something to take lightly. It's something to try to help them, try to help them cope with it. And if you can't help them, then direct them into the right direction of which way to go to get the help. Absolutely. That's the most important thing. Absolutely. Take them to the direction that they need to go. It's hard to leave them, but at the same time, you did what you were supposed to do. That is one life that you saved. That's right. On that day. That's right. Thank you, Telly. Thank you for such wise, wise words. And thank you for sharing your, your journey, sharing your story. I know it takes a lot of strength. And you did that. You took that thank strength. And, and you decided to share your story. If you could, Telly, if you could, if you could use, if you could, Say one word, one word, just one word that has summed up your journey with mental illness. What would that one word be? Self-love. 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 yourself first before anything. But before you do that, love God because he is a jealous God. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) And once you love him and you can love yourself, that is the most important thing. Self-love. Because with a lot of mental illness is because we don't love each other. We don't love ourselves enough to let others in right. to help us. Right. Right. Beautiful. Tully, thank you. Thank you for having me. I, it's a pleasure that I'm able to talk about it. And that, that is my testimony, that I'm able to do that. Thank you for having me. What I found that was fascinating with what Talasan had mentioned, there's a there's a concept that we speak about in the Caribbean called separation and reunification. So what was fascinating is is that Talasan mentioned that um, her mother left Trinidad at a young age to come up here to work, and you know, so she immigrated up here to Canada and left Talasan with relatives. So she was with those relatives for a while until she was about 13 years old and then came up to Canada to actually reunificate with or reunify with her with her mother. So what's interesting is that separation and reunification is a is a significant concept and especially in our Canadian community because if we think about the immigration patterns in the 60s which that was when a huge influx of Caribbean domestic workers came to Canada. So it was mostly women and it was women that were employed as nurses, teachers, whatever in the Caribbean, but they came up here through a domestic program. So they ended up taking care of of um, people's children or whatever. But for them, it was a gateway to come into the promised land, quote unquote. So they sacrificed by leaving their children behind to come up to set up and establish a life up here in Canada with the hope of getting their children to then come up and then they, they, they have a reunification at that point. What a lot of people don't realize is the difficulty of that reunification, especially when a lot of times it takes years. So you're leaving your child at your formative years 
Um, and then they're, they're losing out on a lot of growth and development of their children. The children then come. And then a lot of it, and especially in the minds of the of the mothers, but what was interesting is what Telly had mentioned was sort of in her mind, she had a memory of how her um, relationship was with her mother and wanted to then recreate that when they when she came up when she was um, reuni reunified with her mother up here but unfortunately there was stress and strain and a lot of people do not talk about that so as a result of that stress and strain that relationship that you're trying to cultivate or that mother-daughter relationship that telly wanted unfortunately was not able to be fostered so it sounds like from the ages of 13 to, to 17 there was a lot of stress and strain, strife, and ultimately Telly mentioned that she had to, she was kicked out of the home at, at 17. So what I think a lot of us really need to look at is this whole issue of separation and reunification, because what happens is, is that it, it, it challenges the the whole framework of the family and what is the family, um, you know, at, at that point in time. So it's it, it ends up causing so much strain and strife, and in particularly with the mothers, because a lot of times the mothers have this concept in their mind of once my child comes back, everything is going to be great. We're in the land of milk and honey, so you know my child will will be able to connect with me just fine. And unfortunately, what happens is, is that they've been away so long because it's not usually just a year or so. It's sometimes five years, six years, seven years, how, how, however many years they then come up and you're expecting this joyous reunification and you're not getting it. And I mean, that I, I saw that in my household. You know, I had um, someone in our household. It was my cousin, actually. My mother sponsored my cousin to come up from Dominica to take care of myself and my younger sister because my mother did not want us in daycare. So she brought my cousin up. My cousin uh, left her daughter in Dominica and came up to take care of us. It had to have been seven, eight, maybe longer years until my cousin was able to then bring her daughter up. But her daughter also had these uh, images in her mind in terms of what that reunification was going to look like. My mother's been in Canada for how many years? She must have a big house and, and this and, and that and whatever. Meanwhile, my cousin was living under our roof and didn't own the home or anything. So every decision that was made was always bypassed and say, speak to so-and-so, speak to such-and-such. So once her daughter came, there was there was nothing, you know, like there literally was a very strained relationship as a result of that to the point where um, there was a point in time after my mother had passed, um, you know, unfortunately, we had to move into a smaller home. So the, everyone that was in the home, um, you know, had to move. And one of unfortunately, what had happened was was that. Um, my cousin's daughter, who was, I guess, 21 or something at the time, was asked to leave. And unfortunately, my cousin watched her daughter leave because she felt that she had to continue to take care of my sister and myself. So she sacrificed that relationship with her daughter 
to stay with us to take care of us. So that now added an additional strain to an already strained relationship. So we really have to start to really look at uh, this whole concept of separation and reunification, how it impacts the family dynamic, how it impacts the individuals within that, that family dynamic as well, and how that then especially for Telly, how that then she internalized a lot of that negativity upon herself as a result. You've reached the end of another episode of the Blind Stigma podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. Thank you for tuning in. If you're a first-time listener and you like the show, then please subscribe, rate, and review us on all the major podcast platforms. Don't forget to connect with us on social media at The Blind Stigma and join the conversation. Find out more about each guest and help us to change the stigma while taking back our narratives. This podcast is produced by What's Up Toronto and Stacey Ann Buchanan Productions.